Coming up on the Media Project, a half-hour conversation with Alan Shartuck, Judy Patrick, Rosemary Armeo, and me, Rex Smith, on media topics of the week. You know, the media is awash in Donald Trump coverage once again. What do you think about that? What about Facebook and other social media paying for the news? And how about the complicated conversation about Watergate coming back 50 years later? Those topics and more on the Media Project coming up next. Such interesting people. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. Or I meet politicians and grafters by the Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis, a conversation on what's going on in the media is what we like to think of it with some veteran journalists, and we welcome you to join us. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, now with the Upstate American, here with Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, with Judy Patrick, formerly editor of the Gazette, now with the New York Press Association, and investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, professor, etc., etc. <laughs> and she gets a lot of formalities, too, because she's been an editor and everything yeah, all else. All those things. Could We've all been one place, and now we're in another. Yeah, there we yeah. go. <laughs> A and nomadic lot. Hey, we journalists. got fan mail. We actually got no. fan mail this week. We did. We got a very nice fellow from East Longmeadow, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. or East Longmeadow, I think is the way you pronounce that. Thank you, Roger, who wrote, My wife and I listened to the Media Project on the way home this afternoon. What a great discussion! Exclamation point. Despite the struggle of print media and journalism in general, as you discuss, I came away feeling good knowing that there are these four intelligent journalists still in the game, educating the public and doing what they can to right this listing ship. The Media Project is my favorite WMC program. Thank you, you for what we you need do. to embroider sure? that on a pillow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, really. But Still man, in sure the game. Thank We're, you. Are you sure you didn't misread that? Are you sure the word was ship? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thank you. MediaWMC.org is how you can comment on this. You don't have to say nice things. You can just say whatever it is that is on your mind. Um, we are, by the way, at the 50-year mark of what some people claim was uh, a high watermark for journalism in this country. That would be the Watergate break-in and the ensuing coverage, which some people attribute the resignation of the president, the holding to account, as being a result of aggressive investigative reporting. How do we think about that legacy? Well, it's very interesting, Rex, uh, because we're now um, looking back on the Trump years, and we hold up Trump as, in my mind, a very suspicious and failed president. Um, and now, when you take, when you go back to 
earlier times in which presidents either had to resign. You know, it is interesting to see how our values change. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, it was completely different in 1972 in the political world and in the media world than it is now. Mm. It's really interesting to make comparisons between Watergate and the Trump big lie. Mm. There were Republicans then appalled at the president's behavior who went to him and said, you have to get out. There is no such morality but anymore why? now. Because it is, since the Tea Party, we don't compromise. We stay, stake out a position and fight for it no matter what, win or lose. And that has been to the detriment of American politics. And in that role, the media cannot perform the function that it did under Woodward and Bernstein, which was never really to inflame anybody. After they did their main stories, Nixon was reelected by what was then the widest margin ever in American politics. But it did ignite the politicians who are empowered in the system to do something. And of course, the media system, it's not the Washington Post does not have that same outsized voice it used to. Now there's social media, there's right-wing media, which did not exist in Nixon's time, and had it, very likely he would have not suffered the same fate he did. He would end words, up like Trump, be defended and, and put up as a, what he did is no not so bad. Fox News equivalent Correct. back in Correct. 1972. Judy, you have a... You know, I can't help but say that I loved every minute of the coverage of the anniversary. I mean, I could listen to Woodward and Bernstein all day. I think that they have a font of knowledge and wisdom to pass on to the new generation of journalists. That being said, I mean, Watergate has been glamorized. It was glamorized in part by the movie All the President's Men. Mm -hmm. Many people think that, you know, Robert Redford is Bob Woodward, and, you know, <laughs> and that's the knowledge a lot of people have. It was a slog. This Watergate, the coverage, they wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of stories, and some of them were boring, and some of the hearings were boring. They had to chip away at that story. And at one point, they probably you know, said, maybe we've rode this horse as long as we can. It's time to move on to something else. So for me, the takeaway has been good journalism, important journalism, takes diligence. It takes perseverance, and it's not something. It's not a one-and-done story. I think journalism had an impact in the resignation of Andrew Cuomo. I think that had journalists not been diligent about pursuing the lies about COVID-19 and the state's response about sexual harassment, those sins of Cuomo would not have come to light through official channels alone had journalists not been pushing on that. But that's not happening at the national level because, as Rosemary points out, there isn't the accountability on the part of the politicians. There is no longer a penalty for lying in politics, especially I have to say, I don't want to sound like a partisan, but the Republican Party now has embraced lying as the fundamental the element of, of the campaign strategy, yep, yep. right? I think much of what you say is true. I would point out that Andrew Cuomo also ran into trouble because he had so few political friends here Ooh. in New York, and so the reporting was grasped, and that happens worldwide. If you're an unpopular politician, you can't beat a media campaign. If, on the other hand, you have allies, you can get away with stuff. Well, could you bring that to Trump. the relationship of the press or of members of the press with particular candidates in order to get over? Is it the job of a reporter to make friends or is it the job of a politician to make friends? It's the job of the politician. Reporters don't make friends. Friends are a problem for a journalist because then you have to protect them or well, hide stuff about them. Well, I have, what, Here's what's missing. Yeah. It's we're, we're missing the third set of this, and that's the readers, the citizens. Journalism, um, investigative journalism has been called the journalism of outrage. And the idea is you're supposed to read something about Trump trying to steal the election and get just so outraged by it that you demand of your representatives that they do the right thing. And we used to depend on that. And that really is 
here's what happened with Watergate through a long slog. People said, this is wrong, and politicians said, this is wrong. I don't see that happening now. I see the base of Trump getting stronger and stronger, blaming the media, blaming other politicians, but not blaming Trump at all. That's missing. The ire is missing. Well, we have talked a number of times about the mutual relationship between reporters and sources. If a source That's is... It's not the same thing as friendship, though. This is the point that you are going to that Rosemary was correcting you on when you said making well, friends. Well, she was trying to correct you know? me. I didn't see Well, a source is not a friend. A source yeah. is somebody who you rely upon for information, and that's not a bad thing. Well, you know, Rex, uh, your pomposity has succeeded time after time. Only by his wisdom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good that you guys stick uh, up for you, each Judy. other. <laughs> you need to. And so I've watched so many times that these mutual relationships between reporters and sources bear some real watching and is the fundamental basis for a certain amount of corruption within the media. Well, but, Not but, for decades. Ben Bradley and John Kennedy, that was definitely a problem. They were 1950s. buds and they protected. <laughs> but how long ago? Yeah. yeah how long? I can't think of any contemporary example where a journalist has been found to be in such cahoots with the source that they hid or promoted information. On the other hand, Rosemary, give me an example, no, Alan. I, wait, you spoke. I'll give now you one. I, Alan Shartok interviewing Andrew Cuomo on WAMC. What about it? Well, wasn't that a little bit of a relationship? He gave not you programming, all. and not you a, got to interview. Not him. all. Not at all. And not only that, it busted up because Andrew Cuomo was unhappy with the questions I was asking. Which him. is exactly what happens in journalism, just uh, like. That Sometimes, sort of thing, but happens. not always. Give there us an are, example. There are butt lickers in the journalism profession who ask easy questions in order to get over, aren't there? Well, the one place you will find this is in the movies, because the movies like to make the stories about the young female reporter, you know, sleeping around to get a good story. Lois Lane and Clark Kent. Absence of Worst journalism movie ever gave the idea yeah. that, I mean, who wouldn't sleep with Paul Newman? Give me that, first of all. But if that were my first, <laughs> I'd be tempted. <laughs> but she was tempted, but she wouldn't have. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't well, do but it. But she started it by she saying, who would the rest of her life. <laughs> I just had to be honest about that. That was a real right. temptation. Well, but, but journalists who sleep with their sources are subject to discipline by their editors. You don't allow Typically that. firing. Yeah. And that's what editors are for, but to monitor that. The key thing that I think you said that was You're accurate so from the get-go is the slog. <laughs> I mean, you think about the Watergate right. coverage. It was one story after another. By the way, we should note the, the death just recently of Barry Sussman, who was sort of the third player in Woodward and Bernstein. He was the deputy metro editor under Harry Rosenfeld. Sussman was the guy who actually was handling their stories all the time. And that relationship between editors and reporters is so fundamental to getting stories into print, to shaping the stories, to keeping the reporters on the job, keeping them satisfied. He thought he was the third key player in the Watergate coverage. But in the movie, he got left out. So people don't know about Barry Sussman. Because it's hard to show that relationship. But Sussman was the one who, as you mentioned, when everything broke down, the election happened, and Nixon was in and looked stronger than ever, it was Sussman who said, okay, what are we going to do next? What's our strategy going forward? I've had editors who do that one. I'm ready to go home, like, okay, I did that story. And they're saying, no, what's next? 
Yeah. And Sussman did that. He really was slighted by history. When, when you talk about a reporter and their friends, the best friend a reporter has is, is a good editor. Mm -hmm. And in this case, that's what Sussman did to Woodward and Bernstein. I'm sorry. I have to follow up on that because I'm not in the same group that you guys are. You're, you know, practitioners Determines. in a way that I'm not. So you're telling me that reporters and editors respect each other? Yes. Yes. Well, some, hopefully. They don't really like each other, but they do <laughs> respect <laughs> each other. So not like, I, I, a little differentiation, this would be good for the people who are listening to the radio right now. They don't really like each other, but they do what? Well, let's not overly generalize here, but I, I remember I, when I was a young reporter, there was this terrific young? young reporter who, uh, <laughs> once upon a time, a terrific young reporter who became an editor, and I remember saying to her, Oh, I'm just so disappointed because you're such a great reporter. And she said, but an editor's job is to get great journalism into print. And she viewed her job as supporting great reporting. And that's what an editor does. You support great reporting by allocating resources where they're needed. If you're in a job like Judy and I used to have leading a newsroom, you decide this is where we need to focus our resources by choosing what stories you have to be there or by standing there with the reporter over their shoulder or sitting there at their machine and helping them actually shape the story. And, and by the way, I think you left Rosemary out. Well, she's no, I, I, I agree with all of that. Yeah. Frequently, though, supporting journalism is challenging a reporter. What you really want to hear when you turn in a story from an editor is, this is fabulous, I wouldn't touch a word. But <laughs> you never fact, hear that. You never hear that. And in <laughs> fact, most editors will say, I'll never turn back a story and say that because every story can be improved. So you push them and you go, well, this is great, but we need four more sources who would, might be able to explain the following. And you push them to do work that even they did not realize that they could do. And then they turn out a story that's way beyond anything they ever did before, and they get all the praise from their colleagues and the editors in the back just watching it, not taking the credit. It's a difficult job, much akin to being a teacher, I, where you I would, push your students. I would say there are reporters, and there are reporters, and there are editors, and there are editors. Profound. Thank you for that. <laughs> and if you guys were really pushed to say that you had seen the good examples as well as some of the bad examples, you would probably come up with a few examples. So you're a bad sure. one? Oh, everybody can. Absolutely. Yeah. Editors who don't know what they're talking about or who muddle a story. I mean, there are editors who actually make stories worse by their editing. <laughs> and if you're their boss, you have to find them and move them aside. It's so great that I'm on this show to make you guys admit the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. Speaking of truth, turning to another topic, January 6th hearings. You know, here is an example where there has been work done by journalists on the ground, but more is coming out as a result of these hearings. And one of the key things is the hearings are being shaped for the 21st century audience. They're being shaped to reach television viewers, right. which is different from the Sam Irvin hearings of Watergate, which was just a bunch of old white guys sitting up on a panel. Except we made heroes out of those people. I remember feeling that Sam Irvin would not have gotten the time of day just in terms of his, you know, girth and pomposity and all the rest of it, except that he did such a fabulous job that the TV made him into a hero. Same with Liz Cheney, though. Yeah. It is very mm -hmm. similar. The difficulty is that it's produced, as you say. It's got TV production values. There's video. There's interspersing dialogue. It's dramatic. It's full of suspense. And the result is people, including on the roundtable, are saying, where's Merrick Garland? Why isn't he acting? It is not a trial. They have not proven their case. They've not even listened to the the other side. There's been no objection from Trump supporters because it was arranged that way. It's very effective television. It's very effective at getting across the Democratic message, which they usually suck 
that, but they're doing well on this. But it is not the same as a fair accounting of what happened with Trump. But isn't this one of the examples of how this is different from Watergate? In this era, this is the only way you can reach the American people because our attention span has changed. The way we consume information has changed. This replaces, really, the Woodward and Bernstein or the Senate Watergate hearings. Or even the impeachment hearings, which were all traditional congressional hearings, and they were horrifying to watch. They were painful. What has happened as a result of this, plus the season of primaries? Donald Trump is once again at the center of coverage. Is the media, are the media outlets, I'm sorry to use the singular noun there, is there too much coverage of Trump these days, once again? There is. Every story seems to be framed around Trump. Clearly, they get viewership when this happens. I don't think the print media is doing it. I think the electronic media is doing it. Every primary is, did Trump win or lose? They're trying to add some context to it, but that's essentially what it is. And I think the coverage of the hearings has been less that, even though it is primarily about Donald Trump. But, you know, that's interesting that you you would put the electronic media up against (laughs) the print media. But there's Um, a difference. Is is there a print media anymore that counts? Indeed there is. Indeed Uh there is, although their print words on paper is not what print media really is. You know, obviously the New York Times is a print medium, but it's mostly a digital outlet now. Most of its readers are digital. Same thing with every place. So we call it print media, but it's not... uh, It's media that requires reading. That's a good way to put it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there is a threat to even the big media that requires reading because of millions of dollars in Facebook money that is apparently about to evaporate. Facebook has been paying big media outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. They've been paying since 2019 as what they call News Lab on Facebook, paying them a couple hundred billion dollars a year as compensation for using their content. And apparently there is a second thought about this. Uh, Meanwhile, in Australia, social media have been forced by the law to do something that we've talked about here, which is make payments compensation for all of the content that the social media outlets use from these newsrooms. So do you think that that will really happen in this country? I would say it won't happen as long as the filibuster is in place. I don't think the Republican Party will allow payments to news media. So Facebook has this special news tab, which I had even I had forgotten that was even yeah, there until yeah. I read the stories. And you click on it, and you can see the stories from CNN and the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. This is money that was is going to the big guys who actually don't really need the money. I mean, my one of my life's work is to help sustain local journalism, and that money never trickles down to that level. It never helps do that work. So Facebook is saying it's not useful. Nobody I know goes to Facebook for news. Every once in a while you'll get a referral. Newspaper people or even any kind of media will tell you they do get some traffic from Facebook referrals, but that's lessening, I think, over time. It's the money that's necessary, not the clicks. And it would be a lot more efficient on the part of print media if we could stop Facebook from using any news. They're not going to pay for it. Okay, you can't use it. But I don't know how that could be done. Well, you guys have been talking about that for quite a while now. And as you say, that's not going to happen. But it is happening elsewhere. You know, Australia yeah. since 2021, the UK and Canada they have are kangaroos in Australia. Pass. We don't have them here. Mm, we should. In some thought. zoos, I think there's kangaroos. <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting Zoo. point. <laughs> so, you know, I suppose it could happen. Uh, 
deals where you're required to compensate. But but I do think I'm, maybe I'm missing something, Judy. I do think that there is a great deal of the traffic that is the readership, the digital readership that comes to traditional media outlets comes through social media. It does come through social media. And a lot of it, especially for the older readers, comes via Facebook. But I yeah. I think Facebook, I mean, despite its popularity worldwide, I think people are less and it's they're, the feeds are full of ads. They're full of um, memes. And, I'm, and I think people are relying on it less and less. I'm sorry. What did you mean by memes? I always it's ask. Like a, it's like a. It's a photo. It's an image. It's a glimpse in time. It requires you to read six or seven words. It's a. It's an uh, online joke. Yeah, it's an online joke. It's, it's a little witty piece of this or that, or even they're even doing some of these witty videos. It's fluff. Alan we, thought it was the guys who don't use words, no, but who do little no, signs in the we park. Change the name of the show from the Media Project to the Snotty Show. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith here with the Media Project, and we thank you for joining us. Media at WAMC.org is how you can send your thoughts here. Here's a topic that we've talked about some, and it involves what you might consider pushing the envelope. There was some coverage coming out of Ukraine that was unusual in that it showed a burial. It was a television crew being welcomed to an open casket funeral by a family who wanted to show hmm. a the face of a child who had been killed by a Russian bombardment. And the question is whether we in American media have been too reluctant to engage in what is often such powerful coverage for fear of offending our readers, viewers, listeners, or whether we are at a point where, I mean, Afghanistan, Syria, what's going on now in the Donbass, and of course in Uvalde. Think about this. Uh, now, of course, that was such a slaughter, apparently, when you have to identify a child by the sneakers that she wore. Uh, that's a, a somewhat of a different matter. But if we were to see some of this, would that change Americans' thoughts about these issues? And should we be doing that? Well, my sense of it is that we're doing it when we do it because some editor somewhere has decided that this is going to either get clicks or get people reading the paper or, or doing something. I mean, these things don't happen by accident. They happen because some leader perceives the need to do this. You know, most editors don't run gory pictures because it doesn't pass the taste test that, you know, you can't watch gory body parts and things while you're eating breakfast. But in fact, I think what really happens is people get used to it and they ignore the news even more. You see far worse things than any news photo can show in movies and on videos and on television programs. So to see a bloody body, what is that going to be to someone who's watched 150 police shows in the last two so years? Do, Nothing. So you would equate what people see on TV with the reality that occurs in our society. Yeah, it's the same reason that people don't go to circuses anymore. Why go see an animal act when you can see, you know, computer-generated animal acts on television mm -hmm. that are far more titillating? Circuses died out. It's the same with news coverage. It's not shocking anymore. No, I don't think people don't go to circuses for the same reasons. I think that out of respect for the animals, they don't go anymore. That's you know, a new thing. You know, I, I'm a connoisseur of old papers because I like to see how the industry has changed over time. And, and in looking back and through the 1920s and 1930s of my old paper, the Daily Gazette of Schenectady, I would routinely see on the front page a murder scene, a photo of a murder scene. I distinctly remember a man lying on a couch who had been shot multiple times, and you saw his face, you saw the gunshots, you saw the shots that missed in the back wall, and, and this was on the front page of the paper. And you were the, the editor then? And the 19, that was 100 years ago. <laughs> 
Excuse me. <laughs> that was your era, Alan, not hers. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that at the time, that was very common. I remember there were three or four American soldiers that were hanging. Yes, in Fallujah. In the debate about whether or not to run that photo, and mm-hmm. many papers did and many didn't. Now, when you run something like that, you are going to get blowback from... What would you have done? A hundred years ago, there it. wasn't TV, there wasn't the same sort of media offerings that we have now. So the impact of a picture then is completely different than it would be now. Even those bodies hanging in Fallujah, I mean, I looked at them, they were not that shocking. The one where the AP photographer was embedded with a, a team in Iraq, a team of American soldiers, one of the soldiers was shot and the leg blood spurts out. But you look at the photos and you don't see that. It's not as shocking as, again, anything in a movie. It's not going to hit people. Occasionally you'll get a photo that rocks people. The little boy, the refugee whose body washed up in Turkey, do you remember that, during the Syrian war? It was completely not gory. It was just sad. And that touched people for about 24 hours and then everybody forgot about it and went on. On uh, 9-11, Richard Drew, AP photographer's photograph of the chef uh, or kitchen worker falling falling down, down. man falling. Uh, We ran that on an inside page. Again, uh, nothing gory, but it's a moment of death. It's dramatic and it's sad. And that gets people. But again, not for a long time. It doesn't change anything. The little girl, the napalm girl, Mm. running naked through the Vietnam War, monumentally important photo, uh, an iconic photo. It did not change the course of the Vietnam War. But I think in Ukraine, they're also trying to keep the world's attention, and the world's attention is fading. I mean, on cable news, we're so focused on Donald Trump that we very rarely get news from Ukraine anymore, or even an earthquake in Afghanistan where more than 1,000 people died. So um, I think in Ukraine, they want the world to pay attention, and this is one of the ways they think they can sustain that. So how do you deal with that fickleness on the part of the public and readership? So frustrating. Yeah, it's hard. So fr- That's why Donald Trump is so effective. He has mastered the art of novelty, that one yeah, element of this. Every day it's something new. It's like, <laughs> he can't do anything worse than this, and then he does. Or he says something outrageous, and it always feels new. Ukraine doesn't have that. I mean, can you listen to another mother talking about leaving her husband and son at home, and she's got the baby in Poland, and, and oh, there's no food. At, we've heard it all. There's no way at least that I've seen so far, to make this new and fresh. Same thing happens in politics, and so candidates get ever more extreme to grab attention. Eric Greitens, the former governor, now candidate for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, who did this outrageous ad, which I don't know if you saw it on Facebook. I did. This ad that shows a SEAL team going in and shooting up a suburban home, uh, in which he says it's rhino hunting season. Fake, (laughs) yes, obviously a fake rhino hunting permit. No bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. Is this a desperate attempt of a candidate to get attention? But it worked, didn't it? Everybody was talking about it for a while. Yeah, Mm -hmm. national attention. And Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar have learned the art of extremism, outrageous behavior in order to get attention. And Donald Trump has taught us all that there's no bad publicity. So how do you avoid that, though? I mean, just to Alan's point, what are you going to do if you're a gatekeeper, let's say, if if you're a news director, a producer, an editor? How do you not reward these outrageous grabs at attention? And it's a challenge for the social media companies who have pledged to try to reduce this kind of violence, the spread of this kind of violence. Greitens ad, it was up for a while. I think Twitter has retained it with a, some sort of label on it, but it's not showing that they're doing a great job of preventing this from happening. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see whether any television stations in his state air that ad, because 
I would think they'd get in trouble with the FCC with it. Clearly. Mm, a horrible ad. A grab for attention. I don't think it lasted very long. I think it was a one-and-done kind of deal. But everybody is still talking about it, and I guarantee in Missouri they're talking about it all the time. So that might be just what he was aiming for in a tough primary. That's what they say of Missouri show me. There you go. And he did. Mm -hmm. So finally, we come to what may be a comeuppance. The big lie of Donald Trump may be actually causing some trouble for the MAGA media arm. And that is because on the same day the January 6th committee hearing was opening up to the public, Fox and OAN had legal defeats in court about his advancement of the election lies. And this has to do with the voting machine company that these news outlets attacked at Trump's insistence. And there may well be not Donald Trump paying a penalty for that, but the entities that covered him. So, you know, maybe there's some justice in that. The question is, will the penalty be enough to make them care? Or will it be just the cost of doing business for Fox or for any of these upstart right-wing news media? Maybe so. All right. We are out of time. That is all that we have for this week. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. With thanks to our producer, Dave Gustina, and you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Readers get that payoff. What a headache. What a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>